The words to which I should like to call your attention this morning are to be found in Paul's epistle to the Ephesians in the third chapter and the tenth verse. The tenth verse in the third chapter of Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. To the intent that now and to the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. This statement, you remember, comes as a part of the statement we were considering together last Sunday morning, which begins in verse 9 and ends at verse 11. The apostle is giving an account of his message and the whole purpose of his calling and his ministry. He has said that uh, he had been called that he might preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of God, but more than that, and to make all men see, to enlighten all men, to bring light to all men, that they may see what is the fellowship of the mystery, the plan of this great mystery, which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God, who created all things, to the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God, according to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, the apostle, we must bear in our minds as we are working through the details of this mighty statement which he's making in this third chapter. The apostle's supreme objective is this is to uh, enable these Ephesians to whom he was writing to take a correct and a right view of the fact that he, Paul, was a prisoner. Now, they were in trouble over that. They found it very difficult to understand it. How such a mighty man of God, a man who had been so signally called and honored and blessed by God, should thus be allowed by God to suffer imprisonment with all the consequences that followed that. And his method, as we've been seeing, is this. He wants them not so much to look at him as he is at the moment, not at his present sufferings. He says this is but an incident. He wants them to see him in terms of his great calling, the wonderful privilege that had been given to him, he of all men, who is the less who is less than the least of all saints. This great honor and privilege had been given of not only being saved, but being called to be an apostle, and in a very special way, being chosen as the one to whom was entrusted this special and peculiar task of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles and showing them how they are fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, how their fellow heirs and fellow partakers together of the promise and fellow members in the body. Now he seems to say, that's the thing for you to look at. And therefore he goes on with his description of his great ministry and the glory of the message which had been committed to him. His idea is that if they only see that, then as he says in verse 13, they will no longer faint for him. Wherefore I desire that he faint not at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. 
I'm suffering like this, says the apostle, because of the great privilege of my calling as an apostle. It's directly a consequence of that. So don't look at this, look at that. Now there, as I've been trying to indicate, is a principle that as Christians we can always employ. The apostle Peter, in his way, you remember, puts it like this. If he suffer as Christians, he says, blessed are he. It's something to glory in. Because if we are suffering as Christians and because we are Christians, well then unto us has been given the great honor of not only following in the footsteps of a man like this Apostle Paul, but even of following in the footsteps of our blessed Lord and Master himself. Although he was without guile, suffered and was persecuted and finally put to death. And we are to follow his example in every respect. Well, now then, that is the great thing that the apostle has got in his mind. Now, here in this 10th verse, as I say, he puts it in this most extraordinary manner. It is one of the most amazing statements in the whole of the scripture. This calling of his, this message that he had to preach, we've already seen what it is to the individual Christian, that we are able to partake of the unsearchable riches of Christ. We saw last Sunday morning what it means in terms of God's world plan, God's world purpose, which he is surely bringing to pass. But here, in connection with that second statement, the apostle interjects, as it were, this remark. He says, I am commissioned to make all men see this, whether they're Jews or Gentiles, whatever they are. But indeed, he says, there's something even bigger than that. Through this message which I'm preaching, he says, and through the result of that preaching, namely the church of which you were a part, the staggering understanding thing is that even the principalities and powers in the heavenly places are being taught something. They're being instructed. They're being given knowledge. Something is happening through you and as, through all who are members of the church, which even thus is enlarging the understanding of these august and mighty beings. Now, that's the matter that we've got to look at this morning. Now, it's very important that we should realize that when he talks about the principalities and powers in the heavenly places or in the heavenlies, he is referring to the angels and to the brightest and the most glorious angels. I'm saying that because some have thought that this is a reference rather to the fallen angels and to the devils. But if you take that interpretation, it seems to me you miss the, uh, the real object which the apostle has in mind here and you certainly miss the thrill and the glory of what he's saying. There is no doubt that the fallen angels, the devils, do understand also and are given to see their utter folly and do see it partly through the church. But this is something here still more staggering. Here he is referring, and if you take these, this phrase and uh, just uh, follow it through uh, wherever you find it in the scripture, and I think you'll find that invariably it refers to those angels that are ever always in the presence of God. So what the apostle is saying is this. 
that this thing which is happening in the church is so stupendous, is so glorious, that even those bright angelic beings who have spent the whole of their life in the presence of God, even they are staggered and amazed at it. Now these angels who have been created by God have spent the whole of their existence immediately in the presence of God. But, according to the Apostle, this which takes place in the church is something that they'd never thought of and had never dreamed of. It surpasses even their knowledge, their comprehension, and even their imagination. Now then, this comes home to us, you see, in this way, that you and I are members of the church. And the statement is that it is by the church, through the church, that this takes place. So that as the apostle was anxious that the Ephesians should realize the truth about themselves and about the apostle Paul, and as the result of so doing should even glory in tribulations, so you and I should do the same. In other words, we are given here a portrayal of the church in her dignity and greatness and glory, which in a sense, I say, really does seem to surpass anything that the apostle has ever said anywhere else. There can be nothing, surely, that is higher than this. Very well, then, let me try to put it to you in the form of a number of principles which will tend to bring out this glory. The first proposition I would put to you can be stated in these terms. Christianity and its salvation is the supreme manifestation of the wisdom of God. Now I want to repeat that. Christianity and its salvation is the supreme, the highest manifestation of the wisdom of God. What do we mean by the wisdom of God? Well, here is a good definition of it. The wisdom of God is that attribute according to which he arranges his purposes and his plans, arranges his means, and brings forth the results that he desires perfectly. That is wisdom. That is, of course, a, a human wisdom in a sense, isn't it? Wisdom is that faculty, that quality, that very rare faculty and quality, which enables a man thus to see round the situation and to so order and arrange everything that it will lead inevitably to the most desirable and the most desired result. What a difference there is between knowledge and wisdom. There are many men who have knowledge, but they haven't got wisdom. In now, wisdom, you see, in a sense, is the capacity and the power to make use of your knowledge. A man can be a very learned man, but if he lacks wisdom, he's useless. Now, that applies in every profession and in every walk of life, over and above a knowledge of the facts. The thing that differentiates the supreme artist, the great scientist, the great man in any profession, is that he's got this further quality of being able to use and to harness all he knows in order to lead to the desired result. Well, now the Bible talks about the wisdom of God. It is one of the attributes 
in the character and the being of God. And what the apostle here is telling us is that in and through the church, in and through the Christian salvation, this attribute of God is being revealed to the principalities and the powers in the heavenly places in a greater manner than ever before. Let me put it to you like this. The principalities and the powers in the heavenly places obviously knew already a great deal about the wisdom of God. Spending their time there in the presence of God, they are in that wonderful position of being able to observe all that God does and all that God arranges. And therefore they were well aware of the wisdom of God. They'd seen it, for instance, in nature and in creation. And for anyone who has an eye to see, the wisdom of God can be seen in a marvelous manner there. Take any flower you like. Dissect it. And you will find that it has been built up and made on a very definite plan and on a very definite design. Not only that, there is no question at all, but that the greatest characteristic of all God's handiwork in nature is the essential simplicity of the pattern with which he always works. Now that's a thing that's worth contemplating. God always works in a very simple manner and on a very simple pattern. You can get flowers which look highly involved and complex and complicated, but if you dissect them, I say, you will find that you always come back to a very simple pattern. And what appears to be complex is but an aggregate, a collection of a number of these very simple patterns. And that runs right through the whole of nature. It is the differentiating and distinguishing characteristic of God's work everywhere. And it's there, I say, that you see God's essential wisdom in this simple pattern. Now again, I want to use the illustration. I suggest that the outstanding characteristic of all genius, of supreme competence in any department, is always simplicity. Uh, the great artist always gives the impression that what he's doing is quite simple, and you think as you watch him that you could do it. But the sort of man who's fussy uh, and makes you feel that the thing is really difficult, well, it's just a proclamation that he's not doing it too well. Uh, work it out, I say, in, in any profession, in any calling, in any respect in life whatsoever. And when the man who's a real expert comes along, if another man has got into difficulties and doesn't quite know where he is, the expert comes along and he just pushes that there and that here and there, the thing is open and it's quite simple. You see it supremely, of course, in the preaching of our blessed Lord and Savior, though he handled such profundities. His essential pattern was always a very simple one. How often has this been forgotten in the whole of life and in the Christian church herself? People always seem to have the foolish notion that the really great and profound is that which they cannot understand. It's the exact opposite. If a mind isn't clear and able to express itself clearly, 
and to extract its principles, it's a sign of confusion and a lack of ability. Well, now I say all that is seen very perfectly in the whole realm of nature. And the angels, of course, had been observing this. They'd been watching how God had so planned creation that you get every year, spring, summer, autumn, winter, same thing every year, how simple it all is. And how a thing starts in such a simple manner and grows and develops and then begins to blossom and to bloom and to reach its maturity and fade and wither and die. Always the same thing. What a wonderfully simple pattern. There shines gloriously, I say, the wisdom of God. And then, of course, they'd seen it also in history. They'd been watching right through all the history that is recorded in the Old Testament. And they'd seen how God had been handling the nations. They'd watched him, how he'd patiently allowed some great tyrant to rise up and stride the world as a kind of colossus and cause all the people and the nations to quake in their shoes and everybody to be terrified and alarmed and even they perhaps began to wonder what was happening. And then they'd find that at a given moment God would arise and scatter his enemies and they'd gone as if they'd never been the wisdom of God in history. And at a time like this, my dear friends, there's nothing more profitable for us than for us just to read history. To read it, of course, with a Christian eye. If you don't read it with a Christian and a biblical eye, you'll come to Hegel's conclusion, which was, you remember, that history teaches us that history teaches us nothing. But if you look at it with a biblical or with a Christian eye, well, you'll find that it'll teach you a great deal. Because at the back of it all, you will see the wisdom of God allowing, permitting this and that, but always in control. The Lord reigneth and is always there and at his own time he does things. And the, and the angels had been watching all this and admiring it and worshipping God as they looked at it. And then, of course, in a very particular way, they'd been watching and observing the whole history and story of the Jews. One day they saw God looking at a man whose name was Abram, living in a pagan country amongst a lot of pagans. And they couldn't understand God's interest in this one man. But they watched. And they saw him calling him out, out of his own country, taking him to a land. He didn't know where he was going, but he went. And they began to see it. God was forming a nation for himself, creating a people for himself. And they watched it all. The call of Abram, is coming to Canaan, the children being born, the purpose being furthered through Isaac and then through Jacob and not Esau. And in every move they see the wisdom of God. Perhaps they thought at first that Esau was going to be the man, but no, it was Jacob. Esau was a much nicer man, a hunting kind of fellow, hale and hearty fellow. Here he was. A wonderful man to look at and so on, not like this cringing Jacob who spends his time in the house always round about his mother, a miserable type of man. But that's the one that God chooses, and they couldn't understand it. But then they began to see the purpose unfolding, that God is here giving a great illustration, that he is not, as it were, calling the righteous, but sinners to repentance, taking hold of the worst and turning it into the best, and thereby revealing his great wisdom. Well, they'd been watching all this. And how the children of Israel had gone down into Egypt, and everybody thought that's the end. And then how suddenly God smote Pharaoh and his hosts 
in the Red Sea and brought the children of Israel back into Canaan and the whole of the subsequent history. They'd seen all this. And they knew all about it and they'd been watching this tremendous manifestation of the wisdom of God. Ah, yes, says the apostle, but you know, it isn't there they've really seen it. It is as the result of the message entrusted to me and what has resulted in the church that these principalities and powers in the heavenly places have been able to see the manifold wisdom of God. Oh, yes, they knew about the wisdom. What they didn't know was its many-sidedness, its variegated character, the great varieties of colors in this wisdom about which they knew the essence. In other words, the apostle's argument is this, that the angels, these principalities and powers, have been brought to see through the church that God's wisdom is a much bigger thing than they'd ever imagined. That it is more varied, more variegated, that there are colors in it, which they were never aware of, that there are hidden glories in it, which even they knew nothing about, though they, as it were, had always been living in the school of God. Now, here is a very interesting picture. It's a kind of illustration which the apostle uses by implying this word manifold. What he's really saying is this, you see, that the light, the whiteness of the light of God's wisdom has suddenly appeared in the colors of the spectrum. It's been broken up into its component parts. They saw nothing but the whiteness. They're now seeing all the shades, all the varieties of colors, the variegated wisdom of God. Very well. I go on to my second principle, therefore, which is this. That the church is the medium through which this does become manifest. So the illustration is this, you see. The church is the kind of prism that is put in the path of the light and splits up the whiteness into the colors of the spectrum. What a conception of the Christian church. Here it is, I say. Without it, well, the angels could see the light, they could see the wisdom, but they had no conception that all this was in it. How have they come to see it now? Well, the prism has been put there, the church. It is through the church as a medium that the angels have got this new conception of this transcendent glory of the wisdom of God. Now then, this is surely the most important thing that you can I and you and I can ever grasp and ever realize. The Christian church to which you and I belong is the most wonderful thing that the world has ever seen or ever will see. That's the proposition. The Christian church is the most wonderful thing in the world at this moment. More wonderful than anything in nature. Oh, we're all very interested in the wonders of nature, aren't we? We'll travel miles in order to see them. We'll go to Switzerland to look at the great mountains. We'll travel to America to look at the Grand Canyon. 
Marvelous, we say. Wonderful, thrilling. And we'll spend great amounts of money in order to do so. We look at these great spectacles and we say, what a tremendous thing. The proposition of the apostle is this, that all these things pale into insignificance when put side by side with the Christian church. When put side by side with those of us who are Christians who are gathered together at this moment in this congregation. Something that we can see for nothing without traveling at all. Here we are. You and I, my friends, as members of the body of Christ, are the most wonderful thing in the universe. The most amazing thing that God has ever done. You can't explain the great mountains or the phenomena of nature without God. You can't explain these flowers without him. I think I've told you before the story of the men living here in London who went on a holiday to the country in the early September once. And he stood there and happened to look at a great field of wheat ripe under harvest. And there it was in all its golden splendor with a slight breeze just playing upon it. And he looked and he said the only thing that a man should say when he looks at such, at such a sight. He said, well done God. The wisdom and the marvel of God's handiwork. But my dear friends, it's the church that really shows it. The thing that you and I belong to. The thing that we are parts of. This is the supreme and highest manifestation of God's handiwork. The rest is nothing to God by comparison with this. Very well then, I want to draw two very important conclusions at this point. How terribly wrong it is, therefore, for those who call themselves dispensationalists to say that the Christian church was a mere afterthought in the mind of God, that he'd never really intended it in eternity, that the Lord Jesus Christ came to earth and preached the gospel of the kingdom, and then the Jews didn't receive it, and because the Jews rejected the gospel of the kingdom, ah, as an afterthought, the church came in. The greatest thing in the universe, the mightiest concept of God's own wisdom, an afterthought. You see how we deny scripture by our errors. The church, far from being an afterthought, is the brightest shining of the wisdom of God. It is equally wrong to say that the church is only temporary and that a time will come when the church will be removed and the Jews will come back or the kingdom will come back. There is nothing beyond the church. She is the highest, the supremest manifestation of the wisdom of God. And to look forward to something greater than the church is to deny not only this verse but many another verse in the scripture. There is nothing conceivable Beyond the church, because she is the final expression of the wisdom of God. The thing above all others that enables the angels to see into the wisdom of God. Very well, that brings me to my third principle, which is this. How God shows and manifests this variegated wisdom of his in and through the church and in salvation. Let me give you some thoughts to meditate upon. 
I take it, my friends, that this is the sort of thing that you and I will spend our eternity in thinking about. Did you notice what I read to you at the, uh, in the reading at the beginning out of that first chapter of Peter's first epistle? Did you notice what I ended on? Which things, he said, the angels also desire to look into. What's he talking about? The Christian salvation and the Christian church. Now, look at that phrase again. Which things also, he says, the angels desire to look into. Now, the correct translation there is this. That the angels of God, he says, are stooping down in order to look at it. It's a wonderful picture then. It's a sort of anthropomorphism, if you like. But there they are. That's the actual word that Peter used. The angels in glory, you see, are looking down over the ramparts of heaven. They're stooping down to look at what? To look at you and me. To look at the Christian church. This manifestation of the many-colored wisdom of God. They're looking down upon it. They've never seen anything like it. They who spent their eternity in the presence of God. And therefore I say that you and I must start looking at it now. Because we are going to go on looking at this for all eternity. And we'll never cease to be surprised and amazed at it. Well, what do you see? Well, here are some of the things. Think for a moment of the amazing way in which God solved the problem raised by sin. You see, we are talking about the wisdom of God. Now, here I say is where you see the wisdom of God. The way which he contrived and thought out of dealing with the problem of sin. What the apostle is saying here is this. That this, and I say it with reverence, this is the greatest problem that has ever confronted God. That is why salvation is the greatest manifestation of the wisdom of God. You know, it wasn't a difficult thing for God to create the light and the sun. All he said was, let there be light, and there was light. Your great mountains, they're nothing to God. The nations are like a drop in the bucket, the small dust of the balance. To send a pestilence, to cause an earthquake, it's nothing to God. These things to him are simplicities. There was no problem there. But here is the problem. Man in sin. I say with reverence, here is a problem for God. The greatest problem that God ever has faced or ever will face. There is nothing beyond it. So the greatest wisdom is needed to solve this problem. If any of you think that salvation, the salvation of men, was a simple thing for God, well, you're just telling me that you don't know your New Testament, nor your Old Testament. Do you think that forgiveness is a simple thing for God, and that just because God is love, he says, all right, I'll forgive you? My dear friend, if you believe that, you might as well burn your Bibles. The forgiveness of sins, dare I say it? Text, even the wisdom of God. I'm at any rate certain I'm right when I say this. The angels could see no way through it. That's why they're surprised when they see what God has done about it. 
They couldn't see it. They knew that some of their fellows had sinned and had been cast down and reserved in chains in hell by God. That's what Peter says in the second epistle, the second chapter. They'd seen that. Then they saw men falling. And they said, what can be done? Nothing can be done. They saw no way out of it at all. Oh, this question of the salvation of men, the salvation of a single soul, the forgiveness of sins, is the most tremendous problem that has ever arisen or can ever arise in the whole of the universe and even for God himself. What's the difficulty? Well, it's this. But God is love, you say. I agree with you. But don't forget that God is also just. That God is also righteous. That God is also holy. That God is the Father of lights with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. That God cannot deny himself. He is eternally always ever the same. And he is perfect. And there is never any contradiction anywhere or any argument in the being and in the character of God. Hence the problem raised by sin. If God is to forgive sin, he must forgive sin in a way that not only manifests his love, but equally manifests his justice, his righteousness, his holiness, his truth, his eternity in glory, his unchangeableness. How can it be done? Is there a way possible? Must not the love of God inevitably come into conflict with his justice? Can his mercy be made compatible with his forgiveness? That's the problem. That's the question. And the central glory of the gospel is this. That it is the revelation of how the eternal wisdom of God solved the problem. Now I read to you that portion out of the third chapter of the epistle to the Romans in order that you might see that stated perfectly and in its most glorious fashion by the great apostle. Here is the problem. How can God be just and the justifier of him that believeth in Jesus? How can God justify the fact that he covered over the sins of the children of Israel under the Old Testament? That's the question. How can it be done? God gave the law. Well, now, in forgiving, isn't he putting the law on one side? No, says Paul. We establish the law. We are not making the law void. We are establishing it. How can you at one and the same time carry out the law and forgive the sinner? God's found the way. He's reconciled his own love and justice and mercy and compassion. They're all one and shining gloriously together. Well, you know, the psalmist who wrote the 85th Psalm, he'd had a preview of this. He didn't understand it, but he said... Mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. O loving wisdom of our God, when all was sin and shame, a second Adam to the fight and to the conflict came. Do you see it? Do you see this eternal wisdom of God which enabled him to do this tremendous thing for us and yet to remain God, unchanged and shining in every direction with the same glory and the same perfection? I'm free to confess to you that I know of nothing which is more thrilling than to try to think of that.
And oh, how we rob God of his glory. In imagining for a moment that forgiveness and salvation are simple and easy. My dear friends, it constituted a problem in the mind of the eternal. God fooled the angels. It was God alone who could solve it. Well, let me put that to you a little more in detail. There it is as a principle, but look at it in detail. Look at the way in which he did it. How can men be redeemed? How can God have any dealings with him? And the way, you see, he thought of and devised was this. He sent his own son and sent him into the world. How can this humanity be lifted up? There's only one way, said God, and I'm going to take it. I will send my son down. He will take humanity unto himself and he'll raise it up. Whoever could have thought of such a thing? Whoever could have imagined such a thing? Did these angels ever imagine that that second person in the blessed Holy Trinity that they'd seen ever since their creation, this substance of the eternal substance, the only begotten Son in the bosom of the Father, could they ever have foreseen that he would come out, as it were, and go down and be born as a baby in Bethlehem and live as a man? Never dreamt of it. And when they saw it, they were amazed at it. And they saw this wisdom of God manifesting itself in facets and in angles that had never entered into their comprehension. And then, of course, they watched him living as a man amongst men made under the law and giving a perfect obedience to it. Can you imagine their thoughts and their feelings? When they saw this brightness and the effulgence of the Father's glory working as a carpenter in a shop in Nazareth. That's wisdom, my dear friend. You see the simplicity coming out again. He didn't send him to be born in a king's palace. No, no, in a stable. That's wisdom. Work it out for yourselves. The last thing you'd ever expect. Going down to the depths. And yet, you see, the purpose shining through it all. If he hadn't gone to the very depths, he couldn't have raised the lowest. We'd have done it in a very spectacular manner, wouldn't we? That isn't wisdom, that's our human fussiness in sin. God does it in this essentially simple manner, a helpless babe, and all that follows through from it. But then, of course, when they saw him on the cross, even they must have started wondering what it was that was happening. Is this God's wisdom? It seems to be the hour of triumph of hell and of the devil and of the world at its worst. But it wasn't. What was happening there, says this apostle in writing to the Colossians, is this, that on that cross and by dying there, he was putting these forces that were against him to an open shame triumphing over them in it. Using them and their own subtlety and their own cleverness to bring his own great and glorious purposes to pass. For what he was doing there, you see, was he was making him the sin bearer. He was putting the sins of men upon him. And there he was dealing with them. 
He's punishing them so he remains just and righteous. The sin is punished. The law is fulfilled. He'd kept it perfectly. He's now bearing its penalty. The law is honored. He's establishing the law. And yet, you see, he's opening a way for God to forgive us our sins. That's the wisdom. And so you can go on working right through every detail of it and you'll understand how the apostle, what he had in his mind when in writing, you remember to Timothy, he puts this in that first epistle in the third chapter in the 16th verse. Without controversy, he says, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit then, seen of angels preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. And I've been expounding to you the meaning of the phrase seen of angels. They were watching all this, and they were amazed and astonished as they saw it all, but they suddenly realized, this is the wisdom of God which we thought we knew, but here we now really see it. Well then, as the result of that, I'm entitled to say this. That this is, I say, the final and the supreme manifestation of God's wisdom. The way he's reconciled his own attributes. The way he's done it in detail, yes, but particularly. And this, of course, was very uh, high in the estimate of the apostle at this particular point. The way that he contrived to bring the Jew and the Gentile together. I suppose in many ways that's one of the most marvelous things of all. Jew and Gentile, irreconcilable. Absolutely different traditional enemies with all their traditions opposed to one another. And the angels used to look down and see the world divided into Jew and Gentile as it still is. What can be done about this? How can they ever? And of course they, they'd watched men trying to do it by glossing it over, just patching it up as it were, making them shake hands for a moment, only to rearm and then stab one another in the back when they had a chance. Is there any way wherever it can be done? And at last they saw it happening in the church. And the Jew and the Gentile are brought together in the church not as a temporary truce, not simply by putting some uh, kind of force between them to prevent them getting at one another and killing one another, not some police action, no, no. They're made one fellow members in a body. How has he done it? Well, here you see the wisdom of God. He hasn't just taken the two as they are and somehow brought them together. He first of all takes the Jew and he smashes him to the ground. He then takes the Gentile and smashes him to the ground. He makes them both see that they are both sinners. That there is none righteous, no, not one. The Jew having seen himself as he is in the sight of God has nothing to be proud of. Neither has the Gentile. And there they both are licking the dust. And seeing their unutterable hopelessness and at the same time seeing that they're identical. And then, you see, having brought them down, he raises them up. Not simply as they were, he makes new men of both of them. So that the Jew is no longer a Jew and the Gentile is no longer a Gentile. Each is a new man in Christ Jesus. Who after the flesh still Jew and Gentile. But that forgotten in Christ, the new man, the new creation. And they're both identical. They're both members of the same body, interlocked together in the same joint. They're one and they can't help it. That's the wisdom of God. And then if you watch the way in which he does all this, the way in which he treats us all in different ways. The soul of Tarsus, you see, has to strike him on his back on the road to Damascus, and the risen Lord appears to him. 
Lydia, her heart is quietly opened. An earthquake brings the Philippian jailer in. Oh, if we could only go back across our experiences, every one of us this morning, we'd see this many-sided wisdom of God. He knows us, everyone. Some of us need to be knocked down. Some need to be lifted up. He knows. He does it. There's no end to his wisdom. And then consider the timing, the way in which God times all this. Look at the Old Testament. There are the people crying out, How long, O Lord? Why don't you come? Why don't you send the Messiah? But he did it when the fullness of the times was come. When was that? Well, you see, he had given the children of Israel enough time to see that the law, the mere possession of the law, couldn't save them. They thought it could. He gave them long enough to be absolutely convinced that it couldn't. And he, at the same time, gave the Greeks, the philosophers, enough time to see that their philosophy couldn't save the world either. Now, you see, if God had sent Christ before these two things, some people might have gone on thinking, well, you know, if philosophy had only had a chance, it would have done it. So God allowed Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, and all the rest of them to come and teach and set up their schools and found their great followings and lead to nothing. And then having proved that nothing could do it, he does it in his way. And so his glorious wisdom shines forth. And as you follow the subsequent history of the church, you see it still shining in all its glory. How many times have men thought that the Christian church is finished? How many times have they laughed at her and ridiculed her and almost buried her? But as they were about to put her in the grave, suddenly there's a resurrection, a revival. And so God confounds his enemies and displays his wisdom. So that we can say with the psalmist, the wrath of men shall praise thee. And it's a wonderful thing, it seems to me, to be a Christian at a time like this. Do you know, out of the present manifestation of the wrath of men, God is manifesting his wisdom. And the end of all this, as of all things that have happened like it before, is going to be that the wrath of men shall praise God. His purposes will ripen fast. Men can never stop them nor frustrate them. What he has purposed, he will most surely perform. Very well, your responsibility and mine is this. Are we manifesting this wisdom of God? It's through the church he does it. Is it being seen in us? Are we reflectors in our little way of this bright shining of this eternal wisdom? Are you somewhere in the spectrum? Is it being flashed through you? God forgive us if we are failing. But the way to succeed is to meditate upon these things, to look at it, to realize the truth about yourself as a part of the church. And go on meditating upon it and dedicate yourself to him. And then through you, the light will shine in one of its variegated colors. And the angels will be made to amaze, to be amazed at what they see in you. It was our blessed Lord himself who said that there is great rejoicing amongst the angels of God over every sinner that repenteth. Amen.